Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real-life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best life. I'm Michelle Scharf, and today we are unfortunate to not have Jenny Taylor with us. Um, She has some family stuff that has come up suddenly. She had to attend to, and I have a special guest with me, a longtime friend, our, our lives has, have intermingled multiple times in the past 20 years, which is crazy when I think about it. But I am glad to have with me today, Holly Richardson. Hi, Michelle. It's great to join you. <laughs> I'm so excited. We have a long history together going back into midwifery and advocating for changes of laws together, working on campaigns, working against campaigns, and um, <laughs> coming back full circle and just being supportive of one another in our lives. That's great. (laughs) It's been a long time. I'm excited to have you on here. We could have you come on and you could have your own show. You and Gray could do a show on many topics, one just on adopting children in and of itself. But then not only do you adopt children, you've adopted children with disabilities. We have. And let me start at the beginning with being a parent of, of kids with disabilities. So way back in the day, my first degree was in nursing and I became a registered nurse before I was married, before I started my family. And as part of the nursing school experience, we did a clinical rotation through a residential home for children with disabilities. It was for pretty young children who had disabilities. And I remember going and being just absolutely scared to death of these kids, right? It sounds super silly to me now, but at the time I was like, oh my gosh, like, do I touch them? Like, do I talk to them? I really had very little to no exposure to people with disabilities when I was growing up in the 1970s. (laughs) And and I, I, it was super scary to me. And so one of the things I remember thinking after I did get married a couple years later was, well, if God doesn't give people more than they can handle, he will never give me a child with disabilities because I know I can't handle that, (laughs) whatever that means. So, of course, (laughs) um, I'm sure God was laughing because our second child was born with really severe disabilities, and this was 1988. And her name is Elizabeth. She lived to be 17, which was much longer than people expected when she was first born. But Um, I was thrust into this whole new world, right? And I struggled with grief at the beginning. I struggled with feeling guilty over the grief. I felt like, oh, if I just 
had more faith that, you know, everything's the way it's supposed to be, then I wouldn't feel sad. Um, And I layered on my own cultural understanding, misunderstandings, I guess I should say. And, and here I was thrust into this new world of parenting a child with really severe disabilities. And one of the things that happened in 1988 was when my daughter was born, the hospital social worker came to visit us at our home and said, you know, you don't have to parent a child with disabilities this severe. We have places for kids like this. And I, like, I just was shocked that people would say that to me because it had never crossed my mind that that would be something I would consider. And in fact, we never did consider it. And there are people who do and lots of different circumstances and no judgment, right? But for me, it was never a question that I would parent this child. So she's our introduction into parenting kids with disabilities. And then as we start adopting, we specifically started looking for kids with disabilities and or were hard to place for one reason or another. But I ended up having two more children. So she was the second. The third one had no disabilities. And the fourth was born in 1994. And he had disabilities as well. But he's mentally normal, physically disabled. So Mm -hmm. to kind of bring this into a circle, he just had surgery. Um, He's 26 years old. He'll be 27 um, in August. And he just had surgery. And there were some complications with the surgery. And he had to have his jaw wired shut. They put in a tracheotomy and a feeding tube, and here's this big man in the hospital bed with obvious physical disabilities, and people in the hospital, I was just shocked that they acted as if all parts of him were disabled, and they did not talk to him. They talked over him. They talked really slowly and really loudly as if he were hard of hearing. He's not. He's a university student. He's very conversational when he doesn't have his jaw wired shut. <laughs> um, and, and it was just like really surprising to me that people treated him like that. But even more, um, I was just absolutely gobsmacked that two different social workers on two different days, one of them came in and said to me, okay, he's going to a long-term care facility for as long as he has the trait. And I just said, um, no, that's not going to work for me. And she was just shocked that I pushed back. And I'm like, I've been a mom of kids with disabilities for like 33 years, and I'm not afraid to take um, this man home who needs tracheotomy care. And she was just stunned. Like nobody had ever said that to her before. And the next day, the very next day, I had another social worker come in and start the process for him to get on home health care and stuff during his recovery. And she mentioned just kind of as an aside, why, why did you bring him home from the hospital when there are places for kids with disabilities as severe as his. And I just said it was never a question that we would parent our kids at home. And here it is, you know, 27 years after he was born. So some 33 years after Elizabeth was born, and people are still asking me the same kind of questions. Why are you parenting kids with disabilities in your house? (laughs) Which is so incredible. And also incredible that he has no mental disabilities. I know. (laughs) So he's this, I mean, if you look at him, his body is clearly unable to get up and walk across the room. Yeah. But everything else about him, he's fine. Yeah. Yeah, He has orthopedic disabilities, right? So he, his disability is called arthrogryposis, but it's just an orthopedic disability and it does not affect his 
mental status at all. And that's why it's it really is so shocking to me, right, the assumptions that we make. And then on the reverse, you know, there are invisible disabilities. So you might look normal on the outside, but maybe have a child with severe autism or um, other. I, I have a child with some significant mental illnesses, and she looks pretty normal on the outside, but she's not capable of taking care of herself or making good choices for herself. And, and she's in her 30s now. Right. right. But her disabilities are not immediately obvious. Right. And I mean, I think we all have our own disabilities, right, on some level. But you're sure. right. Like I have kids that are physically strong. They're capable. They seem very able. But I have a couple children that really struggle with yeah. mental depression, anxiety. And sometimes yeah. that can be disabling in a whole nother way. And yeah, right. they can take care of themselves and they can provide but they have some real struggles, and those struggles are no less disabling at times. They're just disabling yeah, in right. different ways. That's right. Well, that is incredible. We we need to take a break right now. When we come back, let's talk about more about this experience and raising children with disabilities. Yeah, I'm happy to. All right. We'll be right back. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with Holly Richardson. So, Holly, tell us what it's like raising children with disabilities and the attitudes of dealing with people, responses, I guess. So I think one of the reasons I was really interested in coming on this show, Michelle, was to talk about being resilient as a parent, Mm -hmm. but also my kids. I think my kids are super resilient as well. But the comments start right away, right? And when I was a young mother before Elizabeth was born, (laughs) I had this desire to fit in, right? I want to be normal, whatever normal meant. Um, And then when Elizabeth was born, it became obvious that we were not going to be able to, quote unquote, fit in, right? Because she was in a wheelchair from the very beginning and she was clearly disabled. And so our family now is so unique. We ended up adopting 20 kids. I gave birth to four more permanent legal guardians to a grandchild. So that's 25 for us, but who's counting? We have 19 who are living, so we have lost six kids, all of um, whom had disabilities. So, so one of the things for me was that I had to learn how to not only handle my own emotions, but be able to, I, I think, be resilient, right? right. And, and to say, okay, how can I, how can I give these kids their best life and the kids who have emotional maybe issues because they're coming as older children by adoption and my kids that are healthy and 
don't have visible disabilities, those kinds of things. So how do you do it all? And I think for me, one of the things that I found is that I had to learn to be really flexible in my expectations. My husband and I both, actually, we had to be able to look at our kids and say, I want the very best for you, whatever that looks like. And to be honest, for some kids, it's like straight A's and, you know, and they get scholarships to college and that's really great. And we have a son who has um, a master's degree and works for Google and makes a lot of money. And, you know, and we have other kids where they passed high school with really significant special ed help. And we're super grateful. Right. Right. And it's not that they're they're not identical. And I think I think that was one thing that really helped in our um, emotional health journey. And then, and then the other thing is I had to be really, really aware of my own um, emotional status. And and to be honest, I had to learn the hard way. I had to go through my own mom burnout and try to figure out which way was up. And I learned a number of things that have helped me throughout the years, whether it's the really big things like burying a child to the things like we just had in the month of July, complications from surgery, my son with an extended hospital stay, and then we come home, we get everybody settled, and our household gets COVID. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we were all vaccinated except for the six-year-old, but we all got it. So, (laughs) so, Such a bummer. um, But it's all a matter of perspective, right? And so Mm -hmm. the things that I began doing consistently that really make a difference for me is having the ability to look at the present situation and say, okay, what's the next thing that needs to be done, right? I can get overwhelmed if I look down the road very far and say, oh my gosh, but what's going to happen 18 years from now, right? But to be able to focus on what needs to happen now, I think that was helpful. I use mindfulness and meditation regularly. It's a regular practice of mine. I'm a consistent journaler. I process through writing. And so that's been something that's been super consistent and helpful. And I have made it a very deliberate practice to be grateful. And when Joshua came home from the hospital, our little, the six-year-old, who's our granddaughter, ran up to him and said, I'm so glad you didn't die. I'm so glad you didn't die. And I'm like, yep, baby, we all feel that way. We're so glad he didn't die. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Because I felt like he could have. And while I don't ever want to do that again, I know that if I have to, we'll survive that as well. I don't want that for you either. Thank you. <laughs> Been there, done that, don't need to do it again. Thank yeah, you. I know, right? Hopefully you get to the point where like, you get to be the one that does not survive your children. You've, you've seen it. <laughs> right, I, I know. Right. And, yeah, I, I mean, there's real truth and no parent should ever have to bury a child. It's, it's just gut-wrenching. Right. I, I, I think that about my mother-in-law before John died, she lost a, another son a few years earlier. And I think... You know, it was terrible losing a spouse, and I just, I haven't had to bury a child Yeah, that, um, yeah, I've lost several miscarriages, but I've never had to bury yeah. a child that I was, you know, raising, and I don't, yep. I, I don't want to jinx myself, so I'll just stop talking now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just, just I, I will just say it's, you know, it's very, very hard. It's, I, I think, a, a very difficult process to go through the grieving process. It's long and arduous. And as you know, um, it is. And, you know, I think that that's one thing that I'm really shocked and surprised about is, is how long that grief. Actually, I thought about this on my long drive home last night. I just got in from uh, Lake Tahoe, California, such a beautiful place. And 
As I was driving in, I was thinking, I just want this ache in my heart to stop. And I realized Mm -hmm. it's never going to stop, so I should stop resisting it. Yeah. And I I would agree with that. I I, I mean, our first daughter died 26 years ago, and I still cry over her, right? And it's not that it dominates all day, every day, like it did at the beginning, but the grief never really goes away. Um, it, it changes and you adapt, right? And that's why people talk about a new normal, mm-hmm. but it compounds also, and it brings with it its own sort of trauma. Yeah. <laughs> so I would say I'm much more paranoid than people who haven't lost kids, for example. I, and maybe I'm not, but it feels like I am because I know that there's no guarantee in life. I know that stuff happens and really sad things can occur. And so all the assurances of the world just don't mean anything. It's like, yeah, you don't know. Right. It happen. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, I've often thought about this and this kind of goes back to your and I's midwifery things. Uh, you know, there, there, I think there's a book out a long time ago, something about um, everything I need to know I learned in kindergarten. Mm-hmm. <laughs> kindergarten. Sorry, I've never say that word right. But I always thought everything I needed to learn about life and parenting children, I learned in childbirth classes. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and it goes back it goes back to what you were saying earlier about staying present, yeah. right? Staying in that moment, just taking the one contraction at the time, just taking yeah. care of that. And once it's gone, what do we do? We breathe it out and let it go. Yeah. And then we just yeah. focus on that quiet space in between those labor c- contractions. Mindfulness sure. and meditation, I think, are so important. I was raised religiously, and so prayer was always a huge part of life. And meditation was often referenced, but never really taught in either yeah. faith that I was raised in. I was raised missionary Baptist, and then uh, converted to the LDS Church, and um, and neither one provided a really understanding of what mindfulness or meditation was. And learning to do that, both through uh, my childbirth courses that I, that I taught years ago. And just continuing that practice, that's where all of my inspiration and answers seem to come. And so I can't imagine not having learned that because prayer is great to like unburden the heart. It's like taking mm-hmm. the uh, weight off your shoulders a little bit like here. I don't want to carry this anymore and I'm handing it over. But that mindfulness and meditation piece, that's the the piece of when you're in that quiet space, that sometimes inspiration or an answer will come. And I think it's so yeah. valuable and important. I love the yeah. fact that you are big into journal and writing. I want to be, and I know I need to be. I've been telling myself that I want to write a book on losing John, losing someone to a disease that yeah. old men aren't even dying from. It's an old man. Yeah. And that's what John would say to everyone. I'm dying of an yeah. old man disease that old men don't even die from anymore. Wow. It yeah. was so unfair, yeah. right? You know, prostate cancer right. at 53, yep. it's kind of yep. ridiculous. Yep. And so maybe you can give me some tips on that. And then also the fourth thing you mentioned was gratitude. All of these are just really important practices for resiliency. They're the, they're the, yeah. the actual I, work of doing the work to be resilient, right? Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I've learned is I've done more research and I am currently in a PhD program and I'm actually going to be looking at burnout with volunteers. And one of the things that I really have learned 
from research is all of these things have really solid scientific backing. And there, there was some really interesting research on journaling in the 1970s. A man named James Pennebaker did the first studies on journaling for health or journaling for healing. And he found just some really positive results. You only had his people spend 20 minutes a day for five days, and they were specifically writing about an event that was not right immediate. They weren't living in the middle of it, but something that had happened that was traumatic or disturbing to them. And they wrote about it, and they wrote about their feelings about it. And he had a time limit to help them not start to wallow, in, I guess, in a way. And what he found was not only did they have benefits being able to process that during the time that they journaled, but the effects lasted literally for months later. Oh, wow. And yeah, so it's, there's those kinds of things that are just really so great. And and resilience and, and anti-burnout, I guess, go together, I think, in my mind. And I have this, this there's this story that, that goes around, and I just think about it all the time. So it's the, the farmer who has an old donkey who falls into an empty well and can't get out. And the farmer figures it's not worth trying to save the donkey. So he starts to shovel dirt in on the donkey to cover him up and, you know, just put him out of his misery. And it not too long before the donkey steps out of the well, right? right? And as the story goes, right, the donkey just, when every time a shovel full of dirt would hit him in the back, he would say, okay, shake it off and step up, shake it off and step up. And, <laughs> and, and eventually, you know, you can get through anything. And, and I guess one of the things that I've learned is there are times where the ache is so painful that you just, it just consumes you. But to do these little steps, right, at the very beginning of trying to feel grateful when everything was so dark, there are things like, well, I'm grateful for a sunset. I'm grateful for air conditioning in the summer, right? I'm grateful that I can smell the rain. I mean, some really, really basic things, right? Right. And and one of the things that gratitude does is it literally changes your brain. It changes your outlook. And it changes your brain chemistry. It releases endorphins and, and some other hormones that actually help you start to feel better. So it's one practice that if I'm really in a funk, it's like, okay, I'll need to go write down things I'm grateful for. I'm not really grateful for anything. But as soon as I start to think about that, right, then things start to lighten up just a little. You know, one of my kids gave me a gratitude journal and they'd given it to me either before John got sick or... Or shortly after during that time. Anyway, I never opened it up. But I always have made a practice of actually writing down some some things in a day. Um, you know, whether it's like five to ten things in a notepad. And I would just write them down. And it, it could be a random notepad. It could be my daily planner. It could be on my phone. But I, I've always kind of been in this habit. And, you know, at the beginning of it, of the year, a lot of people like to choose like a word and like theme yeah. their year. Mm-hmm. And I don't, yeah. I, um, every year it's the same thing for me. It's gratitude because mm-hmm. what I've learned is that when you have an attitude of gratitude, when you can see the things to be grateful for, everything mm-hmm. else will fall into place. There is no better gift than to see the things around you to be grateful for. And um, there are times that I'm better at it than other times, of course, just like anything, you know, I exercise like really well. Yep. I exercise yep. really well for a couple of months. Then I'm like, well, I don't need to go now. Yep. <laughs> it's kind of the same thing. So um, 
But it is such an amazing gift. And that was on that book happened to be on John's desk right after he died. And so right after he died, I opened it up and I wrote a list of, and I, I was really surprised with myself. I, I wrote a list of about 20 items that I was grateful for right mm-hmm. after my husband died. Wow. And yeah, I often, in the lowest times, I will go back to that and think, these are all the things I was grateful for and he, I had just lost them. Because it, mm-hmm. it, it does get so heavy, right? That grief, when you yeah. talked about it can be so consuming and overwhelming, I think that that's the part that surprises me um, about this grief process is that it is so encompassing. And what I've learned is when it comes, there's no resistance. Like you have to to allow the, the feelings to come, to yep. feel those feelings. I just recently went through a three-week period where I had to just take it off. Like yeah. I don't have anything to give to anyone right now. And I kind of withdrew and I was surprised. I'm like three years out. I've been doing really good. I've been dating. I'm doing all of these things. Like why now? And yeah. and it's not common that it lasts that long. Like it's only been a day or two or maybe an hour, you know, yeah. where I have sadness. This was three hard weeks and, and it's hard to understand unless you've been through it. And I know, I know you get it. It's that is the biggest surprise to me about grieving is that yeah. when it comes, it demands you pay the price. Yep. <laughs> it just demands yeah, that's it. That's a really good way to put it. Yeah. And, and I've, I've discovered that if I do that, if I surrender to it, it does usually pass a lot quicker and then I can get yeah. back to all of those other items of resiliency yeah. to practice. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll finish up talking about resiliency and uh, and children and, and whatever else you want to cover before we, we end our little chat today. Okay, great. Okay, and we're back with Holly. It's been so fun to have you on. It's been a long time in coming. I there are so many things that we could talk about to cover. <laughs> so many things. So many things. <laughs> you know what? I realized, I just realized that I didn't even answer any of your questions about dealing with other people's reactions to our family. So if it's okay, I'll oh, just yeah. mention those briefly. Yeah. So people people have varying reactions. I think I am more comfortable with people coming up and saying, hey, uh, tell us about your child or, you know, their disabilities. And little kids, they don't have a filter, right? And so they'll come right up and say, what happened to your life? To my son in a wheelchair or what happened to your fingers? To my daughter who's missing fingers, those types of things. And I I would rather have them ask those questions than to see them, you know, kind of be shushed by their parents or, you know, turned away. Um, It's obvious and we notice. (laughs) Right, um, and I, I think I think the reaction that we just had most recently of people who are making assumptions based on how somebody looks, right? Because he's in a wheelchair and he he's not verbal at the moment because he has a tracheotomy, doesn't mean that you actually have the whole picture. And so it's a good reminder to me to remember that I don't have the whole picture either when I'm interacting with other people, and that maybe I can ask better questions. What do you need me to know? Or how can I help you? Or how can I support you? Um, Or all questions, I think, that 
that are good? And sometimes the answer is I'm fine. And sometimes the answer is I kind of need a soft place to land because things are really hard right now. So being willing to talk to people about that. But look, we had some, you had some people one time that were super judgmental about us adopting and they thought it was morally wrong for us to adopt. And, and I had, I had to go through a little bit of a mental process myself to say, okay, is it, is it okay for us to have this really large family? And, and I just realized, look, in the end, at the end of the day, those decisions are mine and my husband's, and we're trying to do the best that we can to follow what we believe we're supposed to do. And it's not, I would hate to get to heaven and have God say, well, I had stuff for you to do, but the neighbors were making fun of you and you didn't do it, right? Right. <laughs> so, so that's part of resilience is learning who you take feedback from. And I think it's Brene Brown, right, who says something along the lines of, if you're, if you're not in the arena with me, you don't have the right to criticize me. Yep. Right. And Absolutely. It, it's, yeah. It's that idea of, you know, you can take cheap shots from the, you know, the bleachers or, um, I write on a regular basis, and it gets published in newspapers and things. And I never, I don't read the comments because people who don't have a right to engage in criticizing me and my family, I don't need them in my head. So, right. <laughs> so it's you know that that's part of it. And I, I think one of the other things I'd like to point out is a lot of people say things like, "Oh, you're so strong," and I could never do what you do. And let me tell you, I did not choose into doing what we did. It was kind of handed to me when our daughter was born with disabilities. And and then when we lost our first daughter, and you know what? You do it because it's in front of you. And yes, you could do it because people deal with hard things in their lives. You can imagine that you might not be able to get through it, but the reality is once it's facing you, you can find a way. And everybody can find a way. Everybody has the ability to, I think, use pain to learn lessons, but but they have the ability to get through it. And even, you know, looking at other people from the outside and saying, oh, well, she's so strong, she can handle it. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that it's easy. It doesn't mean that it's not painful. But I, I think the one thing I've learned really consistently is that there will come a day when things are better and I can, I can get through anything. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. One of the things that you brought up, like other people looking in and, and making judgments about your family or what you choose to do. And then sometimes people will say things like, for instance, uh, goes along the lines of not reading comments. Sometimes we get trolls on our, on our, our stuff and in particular the military ones. So, Mm -hmm. you know, Sad. We, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. sad that they're like, well, you know, you sign up for the military. That's what you're asking for. So cold hearted. Right. And so uh, yeah. dismissive of the willingness of that person to step in and be in the military and take the risk of life. And then when yeah. you lose it and you end up paying the price, what we just yeah. don't have a heart anymore that like there's no room for that. Like that doesn't make sense to me. But on the same way for you, like. I have been around and I, I, I've definitely heard it. You know, we've been friends for a long time and, and we've traveled yeah. in multiple <laughs> different circles together. Right. Yeah. And so there yeah. are there are people that have said, well, like, yeah, but she adopted all of those kids or like, yeah, well, you know, you adopted a lot of kids with disabilities. You know, of course, you're going to lose some or whatever. 
And it's like, okay, you're just discounting like all the grief. Yeah. As if like. Yeah. Even though I chose into it, it doesn't, it doesn't negate the fact that we go through, you know, loss. And the last last baby that we had die, we um, adopted her knowing that she would die. She was born missing most of her brain. And we wanted her to be able to have a family who loved and adored her for as long as she lived. And she lived to be three and a half, which again was longer than they expected when she was born. And, and yet, exactly what you're saying. I chose into it and it hurt like hell. Heck, it hurt like heck. <laughs> and and it, it was a very difficult grieving process, right? But yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's just kind of funny. And, you know, yeah, they don't y- y- you know, it's know just me well enough to, I guess, weigh in on that in a way that I would care about. So, <laughs> exactly. And, you know, when. When I hear people, you know, they're not going to say it to Jenny ever, but sometimes people will say things like, well, you know, you know, that's a risk you take or he didn't have to go on that assignment or like people will say things and I'm thinking you really don't understand what you're saying right now. You don't understand that what you're saying basically means like I shouldn't grieve this great loss of my life because for some reason we signed up for the potential cost of it and that's just ridiculous because yeah. nobody really signs up believing it's going to happen to them or right. no, nobody and, really you know, goes I, I do think whether it's military or you know we have a large adopted family and so of course we're going to have problems whatever i really think that people often look for ways to decrease their own discomfort and sometimes the way that they do that is by finding a quote unquote reason right well, they shouldn't have been driving in that car in that sandstorm, right, for example, or those types of things, they're not helpful. And I think one lesson that I've learned is to not really dwell on the why questions. Why did this happen? Because a lot of times we still know, you know, bad stuff happens. And part of life is, can you can you still move forward, right? Can you be optimistic? Can you be cheerful? Can you find joy um, in your life, even though you still have grief and you still have sorrow? And I think the answer is yes. And I think there are ways to do it and be emotionally healthy. I mean, we have a little bit of conversation in our culture now about toxic positivity, which to me is uh, looking at situations and pretending that there's no hurt and there's no pain and that everything is rosy. It's not that. It's saying, look, I know that things are hard and I know that I can be happy, right? I know that my son has these complications and yet I know that in the long run, I hope that everything turns out great. And if not, I'm really grateful that I had 27 years to be his mom, you know? We can do both. We don't have to pretend that bad stuff doesn't happen, but we also can find joy I agree. I, Jenny and I often talk about this. It's, it's. I'm sad. I'm hurting. My heart is broken. I'm devastated. And I am enjoying life and I'm learning new things, right? And, 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 and I'm doing these other things too. That's and great. And I can hold the space for both. I can yep. have that grief and loss and, and heartache and, and I can also realize that I'm here, I have a future, and I deserve to experience love and joy and happiness and all of the things that are left for me to enjoy, whether that's with my children and family members and my growing family, 
or with another person for me, you know, not every widow feels that way, but, but for me, I, if that should come, I, I would welcome it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And we're not one dimensional beings. Right. And so you're exactly right. It's the, and, and the, and, and the, and, and we're complex beings and we can have both. Right. And, or multiple different ways of approaching our life circumstances. And I, I think one thing that's common when grief is new is if you start to feel joy or if you laugh, it sometimes feels like a betrayal of the person that you've lost. But, you know, how, how can I laugh when, you know, my husband or my child is buried in the ground? But that fades over time. And I really, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. I think we can experience a complexity of emotions and all different life circumstances, right? It's a matter of saying, okay, well, you know, what's next? What can I do next? What can I learn? <laughs> you know? And how do I, how do I put one foot in front of the other? And, and I think with time and experience, it becomes easier to get through stuff. It doesn't make it quicker necessarily. But for me, knowing that one day things will feel better and feel lighter, that's been super helpful. Even this past month of July has been a really difficult month health-wise. And I'm tired, and I, you know, if I'm the donkey in the wall, I want to lay down and take a nap, you know. <laughs> but the reality is, it could have been a lot worse. We're very grateful on many levels, and we had what we needed to get through it, and we're going to keep moving forward. Absolutely. Well, you know, for me, you have been. Uh, you brought up Brene Brown earlier, and and to me, she is just a, a rock star. I love all of her work. Mostly because she she's definitely a left brain thinker, but which is not real common in our we don't really see left brain women rise up in a way that we what we're seeing more now, but we didn't used to. Right. And she has she has a very researched based way of looking at things that we used to talk about being more emotional and maybe more right brain thinking, you know, mm-hmm. you to me have always been, and, and I would say that you've been an example of this and have opened the door for me to step into vulnerability. I would say that you, you live your life in a very vulnerable way. And um, she has a quote saying vulnerability is not knowing victory or, or defeat it's understanding the necessity of both. It's engaging. It's being all in. And I would say that's yeah. been you your whole life. You're mm-hmm. all in. Thank you, Michelle. <laughs> I appreciate that. You're all I actually do deliberately try to live that way. No, I, I sometimes I, it's super painful. <laughs> no, I a hundred percent. I I'm not just saying this. Um you were all in as a midwife, you were all in as an advocate for um women being able to have their babies born at home under the care of whatever type of midwife they would choose. You were all in when you got into politics. Uh, you were all in when you did your education. You were all in as a mom. You were all in. And you've been very open about your family and the disabilities and the challenges also uh, through the years. For those of us that know you, you, you've been very open about a lot of the struggles and a lot of the things that that have gone on within your home. And um, for me, what you did was you held a space of vulnerability and openness and honesty that that is courageous. That is what courage is. And I would say that you held that space in such a beautiful way. And, and when I, you know, when we got the diagnosis and I started sharing things, I, I would say that 
my willingness to be vulnerable and to be open and to share it publicly, I would say my growth in that process was a lot because you modeled that for me. And I just want to tell you, I I appreciate that. Thank you, Michelle. That really means a lot. Thank you. You're a beautiful woman and you have a great family and you do so many amazing things for your community. I don't know anyone who works (laughs) harder (laughs) at everything. I might work hard at things occasionally. You work hard at everything (laughs) all the time and, and that consistency is powerful. I really, I I love you so much. And I really appreciate you being on here today. Thank you. It's certainly my pleasure. So typically at the very end, we always ask people what resiliency means to you. I I think we've pretty much covered that in your, uh, in your outline of saying, um, being present, being mindful, journaling, gratitude, and um, always looking for the next best step. But do you have anything that you'd like to add? Uh, I think I would add that you can learn resilience. It's not something that people are necessarily born with and you either have it or you don't. You actually can learn it by implementing some of these things. And it's it's been a real gift. And I do consider myself resilient. I think it's hard-earned. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think every human has the ability to be resilient. And in fact, if people take an honest look at their lives, I think they will find many opportunities where they actually did step up and were strong and resilient and able to step forward through some really tough times. Everybody's got it. Everybody can do it. I absolutely agree with you. I get uh, emails and direct messages sent to, to me all the time from this podcast. And one of the things that people will share with me, some of their, their life traumas, And I'll ask them occasionally, would you like to come on and share about that? And they're like, well, I'm not really resilient. I don't really qualify. I'm like, actually, I think if you really thought about it, you probably have more resiliency in your life than you're giving yourself credit for. And I have to say that even for those people that decide not to come on or they don't want to share, they don't want to be as vulnerable as those people who have been willing to come in and share their stories. The thing is, is that we if we're all here and we're all still doing it, we're all resilient because life That's is right. hard and it's difficult and none of us are getting out of it without challenges. <laughs> yep, that's right. Well, I appreciate you coming on today. For those of you who have joined us, if you like what you hear, please subscribe to free to the podcast. And if you like what you've heard, give us a rating and a review. If you know of someone who has a real story about real life that they're willing to share or you're willing to share, Send us an email at rrpodcast at ksl.com. You can find us on Facebook at Relentlessly Resilient or on Instagram at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. And you can always reach out to us by direct messages on either of those channels. Thank you. And remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their lives. Thank you. Have a great day. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. 
Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.